Good morning, church. Good morning, uh, friends and visitors who are joining us online. It's great to have you with us on this winter and cold Lord's Day, but warm in our hearts, hopefully. Uh, before I do our scripture reading, um, can I get the clicker? Would that be a possibility? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Forgot to ask for the remote clicker before we dive into our scripture reading. But uh, while the clicker is coming to me, if you want to turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading for today, which will be coming from Philippians chapter 4, New Testament book of Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Very familiar text. I'm thankful for the opportunity to preach on it this morning. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this past week, I had the opportunity to join a video conference with a few other pastors from my denomination. And the criteria was pretty specific for those who were invited. All the participants were Asian American, and they all had to be lead pastors serving at a church with an elder board and multiple members on their staff. There were seven of us total. I think more were invited but couldn't make it, but seven of us attended the meeting. And I have already met and know a couple of these brothers already, but some of us also met for the first time on this call. And it was great to hear about their backgrounds and their ministries. One brother is in New York City. A couple are in the D.C. area. One is out in Irvine, California. And a couple of us are here in the Midwest. The call was about an hour and a half, and we had only one topic of discussion. It wasn't, what can we do to help our churches grow, even during this pandemic? It wasn't, how can we more effectively care for our people? It wasn't even, what steps can we take to live out more effectively on mission in our communities, in our cities? Now, those are all important questions worthy of discussion, but they weren't the purpose for this particular meeting. Our topic of discussion for this meeting was, what can we do as fellow pastors in the PCA to help each other just make it to the finish line? We've had a couple of unfortunate instances in the past two years where well-respected pastors in my denomination have not finished well. And some of us are familiar with at least one of these stories. We've witnessed the carnage that has resulted, and it's been heartbreaking. But that's not the only story. There are more, unfortunately, and I think all this has been extremely sobering for us. 
as we were going around and sharing honestly about how hard it has been to pastor during this pandemic, one brother said in such a matter-of-fact way, I think my biggest challenge these days has been a lack of joy. I need a renewed sense of joy. I can't keep living and doing ministry like this without it. I think those remarks really hit home for many of us. All of us seem to have been there at some point, and I found myself thinking more about that specific comment even after our call ended, and I eventually thought of this passage that we just read for our scripture reading. What you'll be hearing today is very much of a spillover from my reflections this past week. This is what's going to be what I call a heart message. This sermon comes straight from my heart because I've been wrestling with this myself over the past few days and weeks and even months. I want to address this topic of rejoicing and difficulty from Philippians 4. I know that this has been a challenging time for many of us, and I hope some of us can be encouraged by this well-known passage as it has encouraged me even over the past few days. If you look at verse 4, in verse 4, the Apostle Paul tells his readers, rejoice in the Lord always. Now, some of us may read that and immediately think, rejoice always? Always? Are you serious, Paul? Rejoice even when we're almost two years into this pandemic with almost 70 million confirmed cases and over 800,000 COVID-related deaths in the U.S. alone? Rejoice even when our students and educators have had to constantly adjust from online school to in-person learning with masks and for some of our students back to online learning. Rejoice even when our country seems to be coming apart at the seams because of disagreements over mandates about masks and vaccines, disagreements about what is the wisest and best way to help our country make progress toward racial justice or if that's even a problem. Disagreements about what should be allowed, what should not be allowed in the public school curriculums in our country. If you've been watching any local school board meetings, you'll know that that has been a very thorny topic of discussion. Rejoice, even when many of these disagreements are especially among fellow Christians who worship the same God and read the same Bible and in some cases even sing the same worship songs. Rejoice even when this pandemic has placed enormous strain on our collective and personal mental health. Rejoice even when many marriages and families seem to be struggling. Really, Paul, rejoice always? That's almost as if he expected that kind of response. And so he follows up with the repeat statement, I will say it again, rejoice. I want to spend our time this morning taking a closer look at this idea of rejoicing always. Because the question that I kept asking, even as I read this familiar passage again for today's sermon, was this. Is God making an unrealistic demand here? Is this his way of just telling us to suck it up and put on our happy face, regardless of how we may be really feeling? We probably won't be surprised to hear me say, I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. Many of us have learned that Paul himself was not living in the best of circumstances when he wrote this letter. He was under house arrest, so he was effectively a prisoner. And if we read the entire book of Philippians, 
all four chapters, we'll see that Paul knew that the church was also going through some pretty rough times. So he has something deeper and more substantial in mind than a superficial happiness when he tells his readers to rejoice always. This morning, I'd like us to consider three ways that we can begin to experience true joy once more, even if our circumstances make that seem impossible. Because I'm with that brother who shared in that call this past week. I need a renewed sense of joy. It doesn't feel great to live and serve and do ministry without joy. And I think many of us can relate. I think many of us also feel like we can do well with a renewed sense of joy. I have three simple points. Those points are first, we must look around. We must look around. Second, we must look forward. And third and last, we must look up. We must look around. We must look forward. We must look up. Let's start with our first point. We must look around. Now, Paul follows up this command to rejoice always with another command. In verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. And some of us may read that, and we've heard this verse before. We've read this verse before, but we still find it strange. Why would coming across as gentle to others have anything to do with my own personal joy? And what exactly does Paul mean when he says, let your gentleness be evident to all? Are we supposed to just act like everything's okay when it's really not? And besides, if I am feeling anxious, if I'm feeling upset, if I'm feeling angry, why should I even be concerned about what other people think? And yet Paul says we should let our gentleness be evident to all. I think it's important for us to understand what he means when he uses the word gentleness here in this verse. Some scholars have noted that this word in the original language conveys this idea of being content with your situation even if you may not have been treated fairly. Now that is tough. Who wants to feel like you're treated unfairly and you're somehow okay with that? Now before we risk misunderstanding the concept behind this word, Paul isn't telling us to turn a blind eye to injustice. He isn't saying that we should allow ourselves to be treated like doormats. If we consider his teaching throughout this entire letter, we may see that Paul has something else in mind here. A New Testament scholar named Moises Silva offers some helpful comments here. He says, Paul expects believers to be guided by a frame of mind that does not put priority on personal rights. Believers whose primary concern is whether or not they are being dealt with fairly will fail to exercise a fundamental element of Christian behavior referring others above themselves. Now, Paul, in fact, gives this exact instruction earlier in this letter, in chapter 2, when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And I hope we don't miss the point here. When we're anxious, when we're upset, when we're discouraged, our 
first response is usually to look within. We focus on ourselves. We become consumed by our fears, by our frustrations, by our disappointments, and so on. And in one sense, that's totally understandable. I think we need to allow ourselves the freedom to feel certain emotions, even if they're not all positive ones. That's part of what it means to be a human being created in God's image. It's only natural for us to feel sad or upset or discouraged when our circumstances are tough. It is important that we give ourselves permission to feel these negative emotions. And maybe that's also why Paul felt he had to give the command in verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. He's basically saying, as you come to terms with your own pain and sorrow, just don't get so lost in yourself that you forget about others. Now that's tough to do. That's unnatural, but it can be an important way to help us experience a renewed joy. Looking around might make us realize that there are other people who are also struggling, and maybe they're even more discouraged or more anxious than we are. And they might need our encouragement. They might need our prayers, even though we're also hurting. Now, I'll admit, I've been a bit up and down over the past six months, and I've shared before, I kind of hit a low point back in November or so. I'm doing a bit better now. And one thing that has definitely helped has been the conversations I've had with people here in our church and other folks in my life, my therapist, fellow pastors, like on this call this past week, friends, my fellow brothers and sisters here in Christ at RCC, and to be honest, even my parents. These conversations have reminded me that many of us are struggling. We're all trying to make sense of what's going on in this world around us, and even in our own lives. And it pains me as a pastor to know that so many of us here are having a hard time, but these conversations have also reminded me that one of depression's most powerful weapons is the feeling of isolation it creates. We can easily find ourselves in a not very good place when we think we're alone and there's nobody else who can understand what we're going through. I think this is what Paul's getting at when he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. His point is, don't just focus on yourself. Take some time. Look around you. Moises Silva, the same scholar I quoted earlier, has another good word for us. He says, genuine Christian joy is not inward-looking. It is not by concentrating on our need for happiness, but on the needs of others that we learn to rejoice. I can offer a word of encouragement to all of us here, to all of us who are joining online. Let's be honest with ourselves about how hard it's been these days, but let's also remember to look around. Let's look for opportunities to encourage others with our prayers, with our words, and even with our acts of service. We must look around. It's our first lesson this morning. Second, we must look forward. We must look forward. Right after Paul says, let your gentleness be evident to all, he gives 
another reassurance. He says, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Now, Paul's talking here about the hope of Jesus' return. I think many of us would agree that having something to look forward to makes life in the present just a bit more enjoyable, even if times are tough. Students who are burning the midnight oil as they study look forward to the last day of school. Maybe some educators feel that way too. Patients in the hospital look forward to the day when they'll be discharged so they can go home. Maybe the doctors and nurses feel that way too. All of us were looking forward to the day when this pandemic will finally be in the past. Will that day ever come? Hopefully it will. But there's a special kind of hope that I think is different than anything else I just mentioned. And that is the hope of being reunited with people you love. This is the hope that many college students feel when they're away at school. I can't wait to go home and have my mom's cooking. This hope of reunion is what my parents finally experienced last summer when we visited them in California for the first time in almost two years. They were so happy and they could not believe their eyes when they saw how tall our kids had grown. And this hope is what every Christian should feel as we're living in this world. The hope of seeing Christ. The only difference is that when we finally are with him, it'll be our first time meeting him. And who are those who can't wait to be with our Savior? Who are those who can't wait to see him? Well, it's those who love him. It's hard to get excited about seeing someone. It's hard to get excited about being with that person if you don't love him. But if you love him, and if he's your hope in the good times and also in the bad times, if he's the one who gives you strength to get through each day, then yes, yes, you will be excited to see him. Paul hints at this in another letter he wrote to Timothy. He had suffered tremendous hardship and persecutions as an apostle, and by the time he was writing this letter, Paul was in another prison, and this time he knew that he was at the finish line. It says in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Who are those who can find real joy even in our most difficult circumstances? Well, it's those who love Christ so much that we long for his appearing. We know that the joy of that moment will far outweigh any sorrow that we're experiencing right now. I think this is why Paul doesn't just say rejoice in the Lord in verse 4. He says rejoice. He doesn't just say rejoice always. He says rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Our true joy as Christians doesn't depend only on our immediate surrounding circumstances. Our joy is ultimately in the Lord. He's our anchor during the storm because he's solid. He never changes. And one day, he will return to be with his people. He will come back. 
take us home. We must look around. Be reminded that we're not alone. There are others who are also struggling, but we must also look forward because the Lord is near. Third and last, we must look up. We must look up. In verse 6, we have the final command of our passage. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. This may almost seem like a cruel joke by Paul. Do not be anxious about anything. Like, really, Paul? Is he saying we should never worry? Paul, you don't really mean that, do you? Well, no, I don't think he does. And he's certainly not talking about the anxiety that many people experience as a legitimate mental health challenge. In other words, Paul is not issuing a blanket prohibition against any and all anxiety. I think what he's doing is he's trying to draw a contrast between being anxious and finding true peace through prayer. That's what he's doing. He's not saying we should never worry. He's encouraging us, rather, to use prayer as the antidote to our worries. Because according to this passage, prayer connects us to God, and it allows his peace to flow into our hearts and our minds. I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts this verse in his translation of the Bible called The Message. He says, don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying... Pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. I think that's great. Paul isn't really saying we should never worry. He's telling us to counteract our worries with prayer. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers. Paul gives another unusual instruction at the end of this verse, verse 6. He says, present your requests to God. Now, if you've been going to church for a while, you might find yourself scratching your head a bit here. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, the Bible teaches that God already knows everything. He is, well, the term is omniscient. He knows everything. But if that's true, then why do we need to present our requests to him? It's not like we're giving him any new information. He already knows. Well, then if that's true, then what's the point of praying, really? It's an interesting question. What can we possibly tell God if he already knows everything? Now, as I look here, this congregation that's gathered in person, as I think about all of our friends who are joining us online, I would say that most of us, not all of us, but most of us, come from Asian backgrounds. Again, not all of us, but most of us, a good number of us. But that question, what can we possibly tell God if he knows everything, it actually reflects a very Western mindset. And I just want to say Jesus didn't think in that way. Jesus was born and raised in ancient Palestinian Jewish culture. And so for him, God's omniscience was actually an incentive for prayer. 
And so, for example, in Matthew 6, he says in verse 8, Your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then, verse 9, is how you should pray. And then he teaches the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You see that connection there between verse 8 and 9? Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This then is how you should be praying. In other words, God's omniscience is not a hindrance to prayer. It's an incentive. In his fantastic book on prayer, author and New Testament scholar Bing Hunter writes, the Bible is fundamentally an Eastern, specifically a Semitic book written largely by men who were neither pragmatists nor slaves of Western logic. When Jesus the Semite spoke of God's omniscience, he clearly thought it would encourage, not discourage, his Semitic disciples to pray. What can you tell God if he knows everything? Western logic says nothing. But Jesus says, anything. He goes on and says, the point is that since God already knows everything about you and still loves you, then there is nothing you can tell him that will change his feelings about you. The upshot of this is absolute certainty that nothing you ever tell God will cause him to turn his back on you. Seen in this way, God's omniscience is not a liability It is a source of interpersonal liberation. What can we possibly tell God if he knows everything? Again, Western thinking says nothing, but Jesus says we can tell him anything and everything. Because the purpose of prayer isn't necessarily to solve a problem. The purpose of prayer is to strengthen a relationship. I think this is why Paul promises us that if we present our request to God, then his peace, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Now notice carefully what Paul doesn't promise here. He doesn't promise that if we pray, things will get better. He doesn't promise that if we pray, our circumstances will improve immediately. But he does promise that we will receive God's peace, which surpasses all understanding. And that peace will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. You and I, we don't pray so we can tell God something he doesn't already know. And if I can be so bold, we don't even pray so that God will take away all our problems. He may, but he also may not. You and I, we pray so that we can experience a deeper connection with him, a deeper relationship with him. We pray so that we can know his peace, even in our hardships. Another scholar named Alec Machier puts it well when he writes, In prayer, anxiety is resolved by trust in God. That which causes the anxiety is brought to the one who is totally competent, and in whose hands the matter may be left. In thanksgiving, anxiety is resolved by the deliberate acceptance of the worrying circumstance as something which an all-wise, all-loving, and all-sovereign God has appointed. I'll be honest. These days, I've been doing a decent amount of reading. I'm a bit of a news junkie by nature, so I'll often find myself reading through my news app quite often, and yes, 
sometimes that reading can venture into the territory of doom scrolling. Um, I've also been enjoying Netflix just to relax and chill. I am taking a long and potentially indefinite break from social media, just for my own mental health's sake. <laughs> yes, there are always the meetings with people to you know, check in on each other and catch up and plan for the next few weeks, but if there's one thing I could definitely be doing a bit more, I could definitely be doing a bit more praying. As I mentioned in the beginning, this is very much a heart message. And I am really preaching this sermon to myself more than anyone else. There's one way that I would like to personally apply this passage. I'd like to be more deliberate about letting my petitions and praises shape my worries into prayers. And if by any chance you're feeling it all the same way, let me encourage us to consider carving out some space and time this week to pray, even if it's just five minutes. Just five minutes of letting our petitions and praises shape our worries into prayers. Maybe we can even think of one person, just one individual, to pray for each week, this week even. You don't have to tell that person, just Lift him or lift her up to the Lord. It's one small, tangible way we can begin to look around. As we commit to more deliberate prayer this week, I don't think we should be surprised that we find ourselves also looking forward to our Savior's promised return. My brothers and sisters, by God's grace, let's look around. Let's look forward. Let's look up. Let's allow the Lord to renew our joy in Him. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for our time in your word this morning. This is such a familiar and loved passage, deservedly so. Some of us may have memorized it, but boy, these days it's been a bit more challenging to live it out. And so we're glad to have had this opportunity to just park here for a bit and reflect on this exhortation that we find to rejoice in the Lord always. Lord, I do pray for my own heart, for many of us here at our church, that you would indeed renew our joy, as hard as it has been for us. Would you help us by your grace to look around, be reminded that we're not alone. As isolated as we may feel, we're not alone. Give us opportunities to care for one another, reach out to one another, pray for one another, serve one another. Lord, we also pray that you would renew our longing for your return. Remind us again and again that the world as we experience it now will not be the final chapter. The Lord is near. Father, help us to do what we can to look up, just to carve out small spaces and times where we can allow our praises our petitions to shape our worries into prayers. 
we thank you again. We love you, Lord. We long for your return. We pray these things 